Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Jacob Hacker referencing his book, The Great Risk Shift, The New Economic Insecurity and the Decline of the American Dream, talking about how the political landscape shapes health care policy in the U.S. I thought we could begin by talking about the phenomenon of Harry and Louise, because I think that takes in so much of what you have to say about healthcare policy. Well, Harry and Louise were a fictional couple that were featured in a series of ads that was run by the Health Insurance Association of America back in the de- early 1990s when we were debating President Clinton's plan for health security. And Harry and Louise were sitting at the kitchen table. It turns out they were two actors who were both uninsured, I should note, um, were sitting at the kitchen table and talking about the president's health plan. And they said to each other, well, there has to be a better way. Um, and that was the message of the Health Insurance Association of America. It was the message that turned, it ended up being the message of the business lobby. Uh, it, there has to be a better way. And that was part of the reason why the Clinton health plan went down in flames. Many Americans uh, grew worried about the president's plan, and they were worried in particular about whether or not it would make them worse off, whether it would raise the cost of their health insurance or mean that they would get poor quality care. And that's the fear that's really been at the heart of the reform debate that's really driven the opposition to reform for the last 30 years. Um, We've had five big debates about health care in this country. the 1910s, there was a debate over whether the states should adopt plans during the New Deal. Franklin Roosevelt thought about including a health insurance plan. After World War II, President Truman tried and failed to enact national health insurance. We came very close in the 1970s, um, probably closer than we did in the early 1990s, which was the fifth and last debate. So since the, the 1940s, when employers and unions bargained for private health insurance, and most Americans uh, younger than 65 came to rely on employment-based health insurance, we've had a very bifurcated debate because uh, many Americans are relatively happy with their private health insurance. It's grown much more expensive, um, and they're getting more and more concerned about the security of their coverage. But there's always that risk when you have a debate over health reform that you're going to scare those who already have coverage. Uh, And that's what happened in the early 1990s, and that's what Harry and Louise were all about. What has changed since 1992? Well, a lot has changed. Um, the big problems in American health insurance haven't gone away. They've gotten much worse. Um, more and more Americans are going bankrupt because of health care costs. More and more Americans are uninsured. More and more Americans feel as if they might lose their insurance if they change a job. So there's more insecurity about health care than there used to be. But I think the other thing that's changed uh, since the early 1990s is that we've lost the sense that employers can deal with this problem. I think employers aren't on the front lines demanding change, but if you hear what they're saying, they really recognize that there's, there's real limits to what they can do. I think back in the early 90s, there was this moment of optimism and hope about managed care, the idea that employers could reorganize health insurance and in the process bring down costs and make sure that everyone uh, that they were insuring uh, continued to get good coverage. But now, that hope is gone. Um, Really, the only option that employers think they have is to shift more and more costs onto their workers or to drop coverage altogether. So I think that changes the dynamic fundamentally. And the third thing that's changed is our politics has changed. Um, You know, the Clinton reform effort took place in a very unsettled political period in which uh, 
those who, who favored reform thought they had a, a big window of opportunity, but it turned out we were on the verge of a very conservative political moment in American life. Uh, Republicans came to power in the 1994 midterm elections. Newt Gingrich uh, uh, and his um, supporters pressed for major cutbacks in government and a shift uh, towards more individual responsibility. That didn't work, but we've been living with that kind of conservative rhetoric and the political fallout of it for a good decade um, since they came to power. Now I think there's a sense that the politics is shifting back. Um, the recent um, presidency of George W. Bush has been very uh, unpopular. Um, in addition, uh, that many Americans are fed up with the Republican Party in general. Uh, if you look at the surveys, it's the highest level of uh, discontent with, uh, with the direction of our country that we've seen uh, since we started polling on this issue. And um, equally important, there's the highest level of support uh, for Democrats that we've seen for decades. So there's a sense, I think, of greater political possibility this time. That's partly because I think a lot of Democrats have thought about why the Clinton health reform plan failed and have tried to come up with strategic approaches and policy ideas that address that, those reasons for failure. So we've got greater insecurity, a sense that business can't solve the problem, and a political opportunity that I think is more auspicious than the early 1990s. But the same lobbies still exist, the insurance lobby, the pharmaceutical industry, that would militate against uh, implementing these policies. So how do you see that changing? Well, absolutely. And um, the way I like to put it is that the chance is better than it's been for a long time, but it may not be better than 50-50. Uh, it's a very tough political challenge. Now, those lobbies um, are certainly powerful, but they've, they've also got divided interest. And um, the health insurance uh, industry recognizes that there's a big push up against them right now. And I think that they may be willing to support some reforms that keep them at least partially in the game to try to head off reforms that are more draconian. Um, the big group that I think will be manning the barricades against reform is the small business lobby. Um, they were the biggest business group uh, that was against reform in the early 1990s, and they're really still unalterably opposed to any requirement that employers provide health insurance. So there's got to be a, some serious thinking about how small employers uh, can be treated um, favorably in any reform proposal. But I think that the thing that we should remember is that the industries that are opposed to reform have been opposed to reform for decades. Um, they won in the early 1990s um, because they were able to get Americans on board. They were able to frighten people into believing that change would make them worse off. So the real question for reformers is how do we keep uh, Americans on our side, so to speak. And I include myself among the group of reformers because I've been arguing for a number of years for uh, the need for universal health insurance in the United States. But those of us who believe that change is necessary and valuable need to recognize that Americans do have concerns about the, the effects of change on their uh, health insurance, on the quality of care they receive, on the costs that they'll pay. And that's why I think that there has to be strategic thinking about uh, what kinds of reform options uh, are most viable, even with the improved political and economic circumstances for change. Can you describe something about the policies that you have advised uh, several of the candidates uh, to adopt? 
So from, from, for a number of years, I've been arguing that we should keep it simple. Um, that we have an employment-based health insurance system that works fairly well for well-off workers, but works terribly for those who are not uh, making a large, a good living, and that, which is terribly insecure um, because people can lose their coverage when they change their jobs, uh, and there's no guarantee that employers won't shift more costs and risks onto workers. So. Second of all, we have a, a Medicare system that works quite well for those over 65. It's contained costs better than the private sector. It has much lower administrative costs. Uh, senior citizens are more satisfied with their health insurance than our younger Americans with their health insurance. So we have these two systems that work well for specific populations, employment-based health insurance for well-off workers, Medicare for the old. And what I argue is that we need to build on the best elements of those systems to move towards a framework in which everyone is guaranteed coverage. So the basic idea is fairly simple. If your employer offers coverage, it has to meet minimum standards that make sure that it offers you good protection for the benefits you need and doesn't shift costs onto you. Uh, if your employer doesn't offer coverage, your employer has to make a contribution on your behalf. It's shared responsibility to a national plan that looks something like Medicare. Now, if, you, if your employer makes that contribution, then you pay an additional premium and you get coverage that's guaranteed through this national plan. Uh, it could be public insurance coverage, such as Medicare's public insurance coverage, or it could be a private HMO uh, or other type of private plan. The, most people don't realize this, but senior citizens right now can choose between private plans and a public plan uh, within Medicare. Um, and you can do this um, in a way that uh, means that you're actually going to get everyone coverage. Um, there are now, there has now been a number of analyses of my proposal. Most recently, there was an analysis that was done by a private consulting group, the Lewin Group, that have found that it will cover 99.6% of Americans, which is uh, essentially a universal coverage. And it's actually possible to do this without spending any more on health care as a nation. Um, it's, it's surprising to people, but when you look at the facts, um, we spend so much on administrative costs. Um, we have a system that is so uncoordinated um, and so wasteful that you can actually cover everyone and not spend more. And over time, you, you reap huge savings. So everyone would have coverage either through their employer or through this national plan. Uh, the costs would be lower than they are now, and they would, there would be big savings over time. Now, I've been advising um, anybody who will listen <laughs> about this plan, but I worked specifically with Senator Edwards, Senator Obama, and Senator Clinton um, to help devise their proposals. And I argued to them that they needed to make sure that they emphasized the role of a good guaranteed public plan within their proposals. There's been a lot of talk since Massachusetts went uh, forward with its proposal about requiring people to get health insurance. In my view, that's like leading with your chin. Getting, requiring people to get health insurance, right, is like telling them to do something that's, that might actually be painful. What you want to tell them is that, look, we're going to make available a public insurance plan that costs far less than anything you can buy in the private market today, that will compete with private insurance to keep costs down, that will make sure that you have access to any doctor you want. What we need to emphasize to people is the positive aspects of reform. So I'm very disappointed that this health reform debate within the Democratic Party has come down to a fierce struggle over an individual requirement to get health insurance. I don't think it's a central issue. 
The central issue is can you get everyone signed up automatically at their place of work, either in public uh, a public insurance system or in employment-based plans? The key issue is can you hold down costs over time? The key issue is can you make the coverage affordable for middle-income workers? Those are the issues that we should be debating. And when we debate those issues, I think we'll find um, that many Americans are very receptive to this approach. In fact, there have been surveys that have suggested that the basic idea that I'm proposing is by far the most popular alternative for achieving universal health insurance in the United States. I'd say one last thing, which is that as we move forward in this campaign, we're going to hear a lot of talk about the differences between the Republican and Democratic plans. Uh, John McCain, who is now uh, the Republican, presumptive Republican nominee, is supporting an individual tax credit that people can take with them outside of employment to buy health insurance. Now, one good thing about this is it's a credit, so that even if you don't pay any taxes, you get some amount of money. Um, right now, our tax breaks for health insurance are horribly skewed towards rich people and, and, and higher income people. But it's not very much. $2,500 for an individual, $5,000 for a family, a drop in the bucket when family coverage now costs around $12,000. So the studies suggest that this will have no effect or little or no effect on the number of people who have health insurance. But one thing it will do uh, is encourage more and more people and more employers uh, to drop employment-based coverage. And that is really scary because employment-based coverage, as I said, does work well for some workers. It's basically the only form of risk pooling in the private sector today. By risk pooling, I mean when people uh, who have very different health characteristics are together in a common pool, sharing the cost, sharing the risk. That's the essence of insurance. And he wants to move towards a system where each of us is really on our own. Um, we're on our own because we're going to be buying coverage on the individual market by ourselves. And that's a big mistake. So that's a fundamental divide. And I think Americans need to understand that we have two contrasting visions here. A vision of shared responsibility on the one hand and a vision of you're on your own on the other. And I think that's what the debate should be about. And I, I'm hopeful that if that's where the debate is centered, that Americans are going to want to say, this is a time that we need to commit ourselves to a, uh, an approach that will really spread the costs and risks and ensure that everyone has access to affordable quality health insurance. Uh, in the current economic, I guess you would call it slump, uh, do you think that will actually help the cause of uh, universal health insurance? Will that make people uh, realize their insecurity uh, more than they have in the period of prosperity that we seem to be coming out of. There's no question that concern about health care and other economic issues grows when the economy is doing poorly. And this was certainly true in the early 1990s when Bill Clinton ran on the uh, slogan, it's the economy, stupid. Um, he crushed President H.W. Uh, George H.W. Bush um, in the uh, election in part because he was able to say that he had an approach to these concerns uh, and one of them was his proposal for his for health insurance reform. There however is um, something of a, a double-edged sword um, in economic hard times. On the one hand public anxiety rises. People want action. They want the government and their leaders to recognize their plight, and healthcare is at the epicenter of their economic concerns today. On the other hand, it does create 
um, greater concern about the budgetary standing of the federal government, uh, about the ability of the government to raise taxes, to fund programs, and so on. Um, we saw this in California where efforts to enact uh, a universal health plan in the state faltered because of the, the poor budgetary situation. Now, the federal government is different from the states. The states more, more or less can't run budget deficits. The states have to worry about uh, their employers within the states fleeing to other states when they raise taxes. The federal government has much more leeway to run deficits and, and much less of a concern about whether or not modest increases in taxes are going to cause people to flee off to other countries. But it is a real set of concerns. And so I think this really calls for framing the debate correctly. Because the wrong way to understand this is that we need to spend more, do more, that this is going to be costly, it's going to be draining our budget. That the fact is that health care is right now crushing our economy. And the only way in which we can get sustained, improved economic growth on the one hand and an improved budgetary situation on the other hand is to control costs on health care over the long term. So it is striking, as I said, that my proposal will cover everyone and will spend no more than we're spending now on health care. Over the next 10 years, after this proposal went into effect, um, and we can only hope it will soon, um, it would save about a trillion dollars in national health spending, or about 5% of health spending, which is a striking amount of money uh, and means that we'll have money freed up for other important vital um, goals. Um, if you look at the long-term budgetary picture of the federal government, moreover, um, all the talk about Social Security, all the talk about, entitled, uh, about earmarks, all of that misses the fact that the big story is runaway health care costs. In fact, our long-term budgetary situation uh, is quite clear uh, and good if you take health care costs out of the picture. But because Medicaid, which is a jointly funded program by the federal government and the states, and Medicare for the aged, which is fully funded by the federal government, uh, are, running, uh, are running away in terms of costs. And there's only, only really one way that we're going to get our long-term budgetary picture in line, and that's to figure out how to keep Medicare and Medicaid spending in line. Now, I see two scenarios. Um, and this gets back to your question about what's the effect of the, the economic strains we're facing today. Scenario one is, where, is that we have a debate over how we deal with these programs separately from a debate about expanding coverage for all Americans. Each of those goals, universal health insurance and the future of Medicare and Medicaid, are treated as separate issues. And each is essentially left, as Benjamin Franklin once said, uh, to hang separately rather than hang together. Um, I think that's the wrong way to have the debate. We can only control costs if we extend coverage. And it is morally and I think politically wrong um, for us to try to deal with the, the long-term pressures on Medicare and Medicaid spending separately from the pressing challenges that are facing the millions of Americans who are insecure today who don't have recourse to these two programs. So we have to do it together. Um, we have to first figure out how to expand coverage and then we have to, in concert with expanding coverage, keep costs down system-wide so that we can uh, fund these programs in the future and so that employers are no longer subject to the, the huge and growing burden of rising health care costs. Well, you just put it in the most stark terms, in, uh, in terms of shared uh, risk and individual responsibility. How ingrained do you think that is in the American spirit, um, that it's, very, it's a hard sell, the idea of sharing risk? Because as you said, that is fundamental to this whole question of health care coverage. 
Well, I'm a political scientist, and, a, and a, there's a famous argument by two political scientists about the nature of Americans' views of the welfare state and social policy. They say that Americans are, uh, oper are, op are philosophical conservatives and operational liberals. That is, they tend to be very individualistic when they think in the abstract about public policy and government and the welfare state, and they tend to be actually much more liberal, if you will, when they think about specific things that government does. Uh, you do not have many people saying that shared risk in Medicare is a bad thing or shared risk in Social Security is a bad thing. Uh, people don't look back uh, on the GI Bill and the expansion of um, subsidized mortgages is a bad thing. They don't look at Pell Grants and uh, the uh, ability of ordinary working class people to go to college for the first time is a bad thing. So shared risk is embodied in many of our most popular policies. Indeed, I think it's it's fair to say that the things that people feel most fondly about when they think about government is policies of shared risk, programs of shared risk. But the rub is that um, and we have been living through a period in which those ideas, those ideals of shared risk and shared responsibility of the common good have been systematically denigrated. And many Americans today uh, are very, very pessimistic and cynical about their government. Um, we see it in the high levels of distrust that people express about their government. And we see it in the sense that none of these programs and policies um, uh, really can address the problems that people are facing in their own lives. So it seems to me that the, the great challenge, um, and it is a challenge, that um, that in many ways over our, is an overarching challenge for all of the of the economic uh, issues that we face today is how to get people to feel more positive about government, um, to how to get people to have greater faith in solutions that um, will involve the exercise of democratic authority. The fact is that um, government is us. Um, when government works well, it reflects our shared spirit. Um, it reflects the sense that we have of, of common good and a common purpose. And there are some things that only government can do. Only government can, can ensure that everyone is in a common uh, pool of risk, sharing risk and responsibility. Only government uh, can raise taxes. Only government, uh, only government can do things in a way that ensures that they're publicly accountable uh, to us as citizens. And so we need to say forthrightly, and when I say we, I mean people who favor universal health insurance, say forthrightly that there is a role for government. Encouragingly, the polls show that Americans believe that too. Um, recent polls suggest that well over two-thirds of Americans say it is the government's responsibility to ensure that everyone health has health insurance. Those numbers are as high as they've ever been. Uh, people are more afraid today, I think, of, of big insecurity than they are of big government. So the, the real challenge is to say, look, government does have something uh, that it can do to deal with economic insecurity, and in particular with health insecurity. Um, but we're going to have to talk about government in new ways, and in ways that make people realize that government is here uh, to offer assistance rather than um, hinder people's uh, self-achievement. Well, I won't ask you to look into your crystal ball, but how do you see things going in the next, let's say, year? Well, political scientists um, 
probably would like to have crystal balls because um, it's almost a, a sure thing that um, our predictions are wrong. Um, I think very few political scientists saw the end of the Cold War. As I recall, back in the early 1990s, there were many political scientists who thought that the Clinton health plan would pass. Um, there's that joke about economists predicting nine of the last five recessions. Um, and I think that political scientists are not much different in that regard. We can say what the fundamentals are, but there's really uh, a huge role for strategic uh, choices, uh, for pro political leadership, and for the, w the vagaries of luck and fortune. Um, my view is that the basic fundamental situation today is more favorable towards action than at any period since at least the 1970s when we came very close uh, to achieving universal health insurance co coverage under uh, President Richard Nixon, of all people. Um, my view is also that if a Democrat is elected to the White House, that this will almost certainly be uh, the top priority, so that we are going to have a debate about this. And even if a Democrat isn't elected, if John McCain is president, we will likely still have a debate, but it will take place on very different terms, because there will be a president in the White House who staked out a position that's fairly um, sharply at odds with what the Democratic, uh, what Democrats in Congress want. We are certain to have a Democratic majority in Congress. If we look at, at the numbers, uh, there's really no way that Republicans can retake either House of Congress, and it's possible that Democrats will have a filibuster-proof majority uh, in the Senate. That seems highly unlikely, um, but it's uh, a few year, few months ago, no one thought that was even within the realm of the possible. If everything went the Democrats' way, they might have a filibuster-proof majority. At the minimum, they will probably pick up some seats. So. Arguably, it's going to be a very favorable moment. Uh, as I said, the chances are better than ever uh, and probably no better than 50-50. To me, the challenges that I've outlined um, are the ones that need to be addressed now. They are not afterthoughts. This is not going to be a game of inside baseball where you can get a bunch of people into a room, uh, you know, bipartisan working group where all the interest groups and, and sort of hammer out a compromise behind closed doors. This is going to take place on the battlefield of public opinion. And that means that Democrats who want action are going to have to start thinking right now about how to mobilize public opinion. Um, I see very promising signs in that regard, but at the same time I think that we should recognize that there's been a very, very long-term neglect on the part of those who want these issues addressed of the challenge of building public support for what they believe in. In a sense, conservatives um, have really ruled the roost when it comes to shaping public opinion. For two decades, more than two decades, since Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 and even a little before, they've made a, a, an argument that many Americans find persuasive that government is a hindrance to, their, to those Americans' goals. They've argued that we should cut back government, we should cut taxes. They haven't always consistently acted on those ideals, but they've made this argument, and it's an argument that says to Americans, look, um, government has is not the solution to your problems, as Reagan said, but government is the problem. Now we are in a moment in which um, the fact is that government is the solution to our problems. Government used right. Um, but Democrats have not yet, I think, uh, come to the point where they're really able to talk about this in a forthright way. They need to develop the rhetoric. They need to develop the themes. They need to think about how to build a long-term political movement in favor of the ideals that they espouse. Um, and I would rather, I think, have them fail nobly than to give up on that longer-term pursuit and just fight, as I think Republicans over the last few, few years just fought, to hold on to office. Ultimately, what do parties fight for? What do we vote for? We vote for government 
doing things that improve our lives, that change our lives for the better. We vote for uh, things, uh, higher ideals, the American dream. Um, and I would just really like to see our public life um, reinvigorated with that kind of discussion. Um, no more technocratic discussions of lowest common denominator policies. No more uh, emphasis on um, what you can do in this particular moment and much more thinking about how do we look to the future? How do we think about what we want our nation to be like um, in 10 or 20 or 30 years? Um, how, in short, do we construct a new vision of America for a new century? That was Jacob Hacker talking about how the shifting political climate affects health care policy in America.